0: plushcare.com slash weight loss a living history production i'm peter hart and i'm gary bain and together we're pete and gary's, pete and gary's military history, history podcast, podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name's Peter Hart and I'm with Gary Bain and where the bloody hell am I Gary?
0: You're in my room in a hotel in Birmingham Pete.
1: <laughs> Is it Premier? Premier First Class? Really expensive place?
0: No, Travel Lodge. Cheap as chips. Lovely area.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Moore Street. Mm. Uh, what are we doing here? Uh, well, we're here for a conference to commemorate our, uh, the life of our good friend, Rob Thompson, who sadly passed away recently.
1: Yep, great friend, great historian, more to the point, I think, for everybody as well as... Mm.
0: Uh, and it's organised by the Great War Group and the WFA in conjunction.
1: So we're looking forward to that. Of course, this will have happened by the time you hear this, Pundas. Yes. But, uh, but uh, anyway, it, it'd be worth thinking about Rob Thompson if you knew him just for a moment and thinking, what a great bloke he was. Right. Uh, and out of business. Uh, what's this episode about, Gary? F- fill me in.
0: <laughs> well, this is um, this is indeed one of our long-running filling-in podcasts. This is the South Nazis' in peacetime, and this one's called Seconds Out.
1: Now, I've, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to pick you up on this, Gary, because. <coughs> I've been I've been listening to a podcast podcast by some very distinguished academics, and they're saying that history is more than just battles. And surely this series of podcasts is is demonstrably that. This is looking at the army in peacetime, looking at the way the lads developed, the way the unit developed, and what they had to do
0: to survive in a cruel world. Or it's just a filler. Oh, Gary. It's Gary, bizarrely, Gary, Gary. Bizarrely, this isn't selling one of your books. You know, this, no? it, it's a, a, a real change for us. However, let's move on. Yeah. It's uh, it's the late 1980s. Is it? <laughs> and uh, the future of the South Knots ours is once again in the balance. Now, it is deeply ironic that as Colonel Peter Featherby took over as Honorary Colonel, it was just at that moment that the threat to the survival of the unit crystallised during the Government Army Review, which was known as Options for Change. And uh, he must have had a powerful feeling of déjà vu. Yeah, because
1: he was, he was in charge of the, uh, of the, of the regiment when uh, d- during the last time it was almost closed down and they'd become an OP battery and everything, all that had happened. Uh, so this is what Honorary Colonel Peter Featherby said. It was clear that the OP battery concept was to be rehashed, and we considered alternatives once again for the future of the South Knot One option was that the South Knot would disappear.
0: No, Gary, no. Now, the carefully preserved integrity uh, as a separate unit of 307 battery... Uh, which we've discussed previously in the, in our other podcasts, was both part of their overall inner strength and, of course, a source of weakness. In what way, Gary? Explain a little more. Well, uh, their insistence on maintaining the Acorn Cat Badge, for instance, symbolised at the time both their pride in their unit, but at the same time that they're not willing to fully give themselves to the Royal Artillery. I gave myself to the Royal Artillery once.
1: <laughs> well, so they're, 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 they're clinging to a, a view that they're the South Nuts as ours Yeomanry and they're acting as artillery. What do you, th- what do you think they hope for?
0: Uh, I don't know, a job on the stage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they're hoping that this is just a phase in their long and glorious history, Gary. Yeah. Now, what does Major Robert Watson, who was in charge at the time, Headquarters 307 Battery, is the major command in the battery?
0: The reputation that the South Notchers have of liking their independence, of having a good time, uh, there was always this feeling in the artillery that they weren't quite part of the gunners. I think we had the feeling that if someone was going to go, it was likely to be us. The other batteries didn't have quite the spirit of the South Nazis, and were possibly more pliable, maybe more sensible. I don't know, but we're still here.
1: Yes, more bendy. <laughs> um, so, once again, they're casting about for a new role. Uh, so, who would who would rally to the colours? Who's, who's really important for a unit like the Southampton Society? Of? Well,
0: as previously, the old honorary colonels rallied to the colours and they use all their considerable collective influence in Nottinghamshire society, local and national government, the Royal Artillery and, of course, the army as a whole. Who was perhaps the biggest nod that supported them? Well, perhaps that was. Sir and because uh, he is dead now. But yeah, uh, that was perhaps Sir Martin Farndale, who, as the master gunner, was the senior officer in the whole serving Royal Artillery.
1: He was a full general. Uh, he was very important, though, and, and a good officer, a good officer. But he was a big friend to them. But they, they, they're tapping every contact. They're looking into every avenue, every dark nook and cranny, looking for a proper role. And they think they may have
0: found one. What? What is it, Gary? Uh, well, it's connected to the parachute regiment. There were plans to deploy the parachute regiment group in a fibua, that's fibua. a fighting in built up areas role, in the Hildesheim area, area, area. area. <laughs> <laughs> the Hildesheim area of northern <laughs> Germany, and blistered onto the first division B A O R should the balloon ever go up and the Soviets thrust across the East German border, probably about 7 p.m. on a Friday night. And they'd have met you. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, the PRG, consisting of the 4th, 10th and 15th TA Battalions, Parachute Regiment, had no artillery actually allocated. So what does Major Robert Watson say about this? The way we tried to solve it was that the regional headquarters of the Parachute Regiment, based in Order shot, they didn't have a role as once the parachutists were deployed. They started to run a number of exercises to see how they could deploy themselves to Germany, and they needed OPs and some artillery support to do this.
1: Ooh, I could see the South not in that, and, and what they offer, what they offer is they'll supply trained OP, obs- OP parties, Observation Post parties, uh, to the Parachute Regiment Group. Uh, and, and what they would do is use their OP expertise to directly patch um, the, the, um, the Parachute re- Regiment into the Royal Artillery Network within the 1st Division area. And uh, th- that would enable
0: them to, to do what? Well, quickly, uh, they could get any required artillery support for the PRG, the Parachute Regiment Group.
1: I was just forgetting. I'm glad you said that. I was just thinking, who are these PRG?
0: And this is what Captain, one of our favourites, Captain Ian Cunningham, the 426 battery, 307 battery, says. 426 Troop, yes. sorry. There's a bit of a mistake there, Pete, isn't Uh, there? I wonder
1: who made that mistake. Uh, Yeah,
0: and I wonder if somebody had read the notes. They might have noticed it. Yeah.
1: Albeit we would turn up without having guns and without being part of a gunner regiment, we were all trained in the requisite skills. Give us a radio and we could patch into whatever guns were given for us to use and then fire them. We actually got an agreement that we would be part of the Parachute Regiment Group. And those of us who were part of the PRG (laughs) would wear the red beret and they would sponsor us through P Company and Parachute Training. P Company, wow. Based in order
0: shot, I think. Yeah. Now, it was all a bit unofficial, uh, but give the South Nots' ass an inch and they'd cheerfully go the full half mile. In fact, they'd take the mile, really, wouldn't they? And uh, this is, once more, Major Robert Watson of Headquarters 307 Battery. We started to help them on these exercises, help them to create a role, which got us into a parachute-type role. Ian Cunningham had already got his parachute wings, but we started to send people away to get their parachute uh, wings with P Company down at Aldershot. We busked it to a certain extent, and if nothing else, at a time when we didn't have a formal role, it gave the soldiers in the battery something to focus on.
1: This is just classic army. Just keep the lads busy. Make sure so, you know. Presumably, they all get their wings. No. Uh, the, they did send a f- first batch of battery uh, members to the parachute company fitness course. Now, uh, that's P Company, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and that's in February 1990. Uh, but they don't do that well. Uh, could, to TA, not that fit in some ways. Uh, only Sergeant Smudge Smith, Guy Robin, you'll remember, and I want you to say that name so that if he ever meets you, he'll thump you. What's uh, Smudge's name? Uh,
0: Sergeant Smudge Smith. Coward and Lieutenant and, Jeremy Higgins—they get through, don't they?
1: We both—they—they'd be very prominent. They both get through. Uh, how tough is it? You—you've—you you, uh, did army training. It's a lot worse than army training.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, it is really tough. The uh, Trenesium <laughs> high-level obstacle course—I remember them. Yeah. Uh, the, the old, old army style. Surprised you weren't scaredy on that. I got scared as I got older. Uh, the old army-style milling, where they wade into each other with a cheery abandon, heedless of any pain. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of that. I never I, understood that. Uh, I, a steeple chase explained
1: certain things about your features.
0: A steeplechase series of obstacles in a wet, wooded area filled with mud and sludge. Perfect. A 10-mile cross-country run. A log race where a team of eight had to carry a great big log over a mile and a half of rough country. Well, it's it's like a telegraph pole, actually.
1: I think they have chains, uh... To attached to it so that, but yeah uh, we never did you just had to carry right, it you were more manly than the parachute and in.
0: finally a stretcher race over 8 miles carrying a stretcher made of scaffolding poles now it was a credit <coughs> to, to uh, uh, both men by Smudge they, and, uh, yeah, uh, and yeah, Jeremy that, yeah, uh, that they passed to be awarded the right to wear the coveted red beret
1: Now, the officers also, they're they're sent on a a complex series of training exercises. Uh, They're basically testing out the feasibility of this whole PRG deployment and whether they could carry out this role in patching them into 1st Div artillery. Um, If they're going to do that with the parachutists, what do you think they have to learn as well? Because the parachutists have got a role. You said it earlier,
0: Fibio, which was, Gary, without looking? uh, Fighting in built-up areas. Yeah, so if you're going to do that, it's essential. am oh, very disappointed. No, it's, it's it's essential that the OP teams going some gain some training in the methods of street fighting if they were to stay alive in such a dangerous environment. (laughs) Now as a result, they were sent out on regular weekend exercises in Bonnland out in Germany. I can imagine they
1: enjoyed that. This is what Captain Ian Cunningham, uh, forty-six Troop, uh, 307 Battery says. The whole of the village was a street fighting training area. We would provide OP parties for a weekend. The early party part would be training in techniques of using sewers for access the various methods of coming down from a roof using ropes or putting a man on the end of a telegraph pole and running him up the side of a wall and into a window oh don't fancy that gary it doesn't mean through the window Right. <laughs> how to fortify buildings? How to attack buildings? There was also an urban assault course. I bet that was tough. Uh, all of the obstacles comprised of aspects of getting into or getting out of windows, climbing onto roofs, crawling through sewers, going from building to building by using planks between holes in the floors and the first floor. It was jolly exciting, and the potential for hurting yourself was quite high. There was never a shortage of ammunition, and the realism aspects were very, very good indeed. Sounds fun, actually. Uh, It sounds fun when you're 18 to 35. Yeah, when you're
0: sort of that age, yeah. Now, they were not only to to bring down imaginary artillery support. Imaginary? uh, So it's not real. It's not real, no. (laughs) No, not even the Paris would do that. Um, uh, as the is rampage through the village, but also to acquire intelligence as trained observers in amongst the chaos of battle, and then to forward it through their established communications network to the relevant field commander.
1: Mm, it's all a bit, um, it's all a bit uh, desperate. Uh, now, all the OP batteries are in a rocky boat, rocking boat. Uh, so. Because the, the the regulars don't want any of them anymore. So all these TA f- uh, batteries. Uh, so so what happens? Well, the Army decide that, that they'll have a combined annual camp. So who is that? That's the 266, uh, 269 OP batteries and the 307 OP battery. And they have a this in the Otterburn training area in the summer of 1989. Uh, now, that's quite interesting because um, my wife's uh, holiday cottage is in style, just next to Otterburn.
0: Well, Reedsdale features, actually. Now, here's a classic example of the independence of the South Nazi Zars. uh Now, this could arouse both admiration and enmity, uh, depending on the perspective. Is this perspective whether you are
1: in the South Nazi or Zars not? Or not?
0: <laughs> and this is Battery Sergeant Major Ian Aldershaw uh, of HQ307 Battery. The battery went, with two other OP batteries, to Otterburn. We're all staying in Reedsdale camp. Well, the battery commander, Major Robert Watson, wasn't having that. He said, We're not sharing. We're going to have the biggest and best dinner tonight. He started to get his full time staff working on a tented camp just outside Reedsdale on the top of a the hill. They booked all the tentage, all the things they needed living accommodation, mess tents, dining room, and bar. It was a huge setup. up. I thought, What a bloody waste. <laughs>
1: Yes, and I bet the other two batteries were uh, well impressed. Bob Watson, who's the man in charge, he's got his own perspective, uh, and um, he he probably he probably ha- he had his own reasons. He but but I think he would probably realise that 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 this was not a good idea, particularly when they're physically separated from the main camp. Now, do you remember that Dad's Army episode where they're separated and they don't wake up in the morning?
0: <laughs> No. Well, read on. Okay, Major Robert Watson. And this is what Major Robert Watson says. There was no real reason we should have taken umbrage with this, but I think we felt that somehow our independence was being threatened. That was probably wrong. The other two batteries were in Otterburn camp, but we were in a tented camp in Reedsdale, 10 miles down the road, which didn't make the communications brilliant. One of the things that went wrong on that camp was that the Brigadier wanted to address all three OP batteries at the end of camp and word never got to us that he wanted to do this. By the time it did and we jumped with everyone in the back of Bedford's and high-tailed it down, he had a hollow square in front of him. Two sides of the square had a battery apiece and one of the sides was missing where we should have been. As we were debussing from the Bedfords, all the tailboards were clattering down and people were jumping out. He was actually speaking to the other two OP batteries. So we arrived in rather shag order. Great phrase, Gary. Shag order. (laughs) I had an interview without coffee with him after that. That formed an impression in the brigadier's mind of the South Not Cesars, which you don't really want to be there. I like that phrase, an interview without coffee.
1: I used to have them sometimes with my bosses at the Wobbies in. Yes. <laughs> Bryn Hammond had, had me in a couple of times to discuss my recent conduct. But he would always say, after the interview without coffee, he'd say, would you like a coffee, Pete?
0: <laughs> Easily distracted. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Now... Um, uh, they, there was a King George V competition, which is, you know, one of these. we
0: mentioned that before. Yeah. Uh,
1: and it's carried out. And uh, how well did uh, 307 Battery do? Uh, there's three batteries. They well, came. they're average
0: in the sense that they came second, so they're bang in the middle, aren't they? Now, as the clouds gathered, this was emphatically not the time to be seen as difficult or average in their performance. So, they're, they're
1: yeah, they're being difficult, uncooperative, making mistakes, and they're
0: not that good. In such a difficult time, it's refreshing to discover that one burden was lifted from the back of Bob Watson. Ever since the dismissal of Roy Myford, there'd been difficulties in finding an adequate replacement as administrative officer. Now, this problem haunted Watson, sucking in his time and energy, until finally, in August 1989, a key figure in the recent story of the South Knots Isles arrived on the scene. Who is that masked man?
1: Well, that masked man is the man who was responsible for the first oral history project with the veterans of the time that, that dealt with the Second World War, and indeed with this project that we're now uh, going through, and that is uh, Captain uh, Bob Privett. Uh, a great character a great character and the next few quotes will i think give us an idea of what he was like
0: and this is major robert watson of headquarters 307 battery and he says this of bob Privet. bob privett was a warrant officer in the pay corps at grantham who was responsible for assessing our admin he'd been involved from the gamekeeper side of the fence trying to keep us in order he became involved to help us through our problems he was appointed as admin officer as a newly commissioned captain and he began to bring that breath of professionalism to it all. We all breathed a sigh of relief because we knew that finally the things where we were always skating on fairly thin ice were going to be made much more secure for us. That allowed me to concentrate on the training side of life. Yeah,
1: well, Bob Privet, he's a consummate professional. I mean, he's from the pay corps, it's his life. He's a professional. And what do professionals have a contempt for? uh amateurs yeah and bob was absolutely appalled by the the total state of chaos in the south notzizas' uh finance and admin when he took over
0: uh let's go through it what do you think there wasn't Well, there were no proper accounts. No records. uh, And money was cheerfully scattered about in the wrong accounts. And
1: how would he describe it?
0: Well, he uh, he would have said it was a right bugger's muddle.
1: Ah, he was from the south of England, but they might
0: Bugger's muddle. (laughs)
1: Uh, Is that a a sort of technical accounting term? It is. Did you use it a lot at TFL?
0: No. Now, he set to work with a will and soon managed to sort out the tangled web. The accounts were hammered into order. Minor irregularities were quickly eradicated and the aging drill hall was slowly brought up to standard as long-standing repairs were pushed ahead. Yeah, he's
1: a real cheerful character as well. He still is today. He's still alive. Uh, he's got a can-do attitude, and he was very popular with all ranks. Um, and and uh, although he was a, a, a ranker officer in the, ter- the terminology of the time, he was swiftly at home in the officer's mess. Everybody liked him. Now, one uh,
0: thing, however, oh. marked him out from the others. Does it Or not. Yeah. And this is Captain John Jackson of Headquarters 307 Battery.
1: The only problem with Bob was he couldn't read a map. We were at Otterburn and I'd gone out to the guns and Bob had decided that he wanted to come out from camp to look round the gun positions. He'd never seen the guns firing. I said, bring the lunch out. I gave him the grid reference and I shot off. Come the lunchtime, no sign of Privet and the lunch. I got on the radio and said, where are you? He said, I'm having trouble finding my way round this big lake on the map. I said, what big lake on the map? There's no lake in the middle of Otterburn. He said, this big blue patch on the map. Well, that big blue patch was a training area. He thought it was a big lake and was trying to navigate around it when he should have just driven straight across it. If he would looked closer at the map, he would have seen there was a track right across this big blue lake. And, uh, well, that's... uh, I'm not so sure that makes him uh, a unique...
0: He's not a unique officer in that sense, is he?
1: What is the most dangerous thing in the British Army?
0: An officer with a map, or in the case of when we went to Belgium, a, a satnav. nav you're
1: thinking of Colonel David Barron yes. and his attempt to uh, find the uh, Brussels Museum. Army Museum. Yeah. And how many times did we go through that underpass?
0: Oh, at least four. And who eventually resolved the situation? Uh, Lockie. Andy Lock, that's right. He shouted a lot. <laughs> now, Bob Watson, he appointed Ian Oldershaw as his battery sergeant major. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, this was a, a new departure for a man who'd hitherto been almost solely linked with the OP role. But Aldershaw responds to the challenge with the elect-
1: Yeah, I want to say that, that, that this is interesting because for me, this is what makes this this particular series of podcasts interesting. Because I remember Aldershaw, when you first introduced him, and I, re- if you remember, he'd only been joined the army, the TA, to keep him out of trouble. It was his he brother, was a,
0: wasn't it, that, that put him, that him in? Put that's him right. in yeah. He
1: wasn't a bad lad, but he was just...
0: On dr- the fringes.
1: On the fringes, drifting in. place. was a him. bit on the fringes. Yeah, police brought him for home a few times, not, not, not charged... But you know, it, uh, but now he what battery sergeant major? Did you get promotion on that scale? Oh, several times. Oh, no, whether he'll go any higher.
0: <laughs> now, in retrospect, it's apparent that he might have actually been getting a little stale with the ops. Yeah. And this is what Battery Sergeant Major Ian Oldershaw says now of HQ 307 Battery. The role of Battery Sergeant Major is discipline. He carries out whatever the Battery Commander wishes, whatever he says is policy. The BSM carries it out and makes sure that all the boys toe the line with that policy. One of the roles of BSM is ammunition. I was happy with that. It was easy to learn. I could control it. I had to sign for it and make sure as the responsible person that all the blanks were returned. I knew fuck all about gunnery, but I needed to have a knowledge about the guns, what they were doing and why. Knowing what was going on at the gun line and having the tactical awareness that you need to have took me some time. I relied on Sergeant Smudge Smith heavily, and if things needed to happen, he would tell me because I would be unaware that things were going wrong. Paperwork engulfs you. I think in some ways you're paying back because you have things like orders to write, all the mess stuff to do. I quickly realised that I was being tied to the office 50, 60 or 70% of the time. I was in. That wasn't what I was about. I needed to get out on the floor and make sure everybody was happy, that everybody was in. I was going to change things, or so I thought.
1: And that's interesting, again, because he clearly recognised that he's had his fun as a junior rank, as a gunner and then a, a corporal, uh, sorry, bombardier and a sergeant, and now he's having to pay back a bit. He's having to do some of the admin that enables other people, and it's, it's interesting. He's—you know um, I do like the next quote because it, it shows that he's got a sort of typical cartoon senior NCOs attitude to young officers. Um and uh, and also that uh, they'd be well advised to be in the proper uniform if they crossed uh, Battery Sergeant Major Ian uh, Aldershaw's path.
0: And what does he say? I would walk through the drill hall and I would see one or two subalterns wearing some absolutely fucking ridiculous outfits. They'd mix and match their kit because one wasn't clean or they hadn't ironed it or they'd wear kit that wasn't pressed or they hadn't cleaned their boots or shoes. I'd just go... Sir, wave them over and say, go and get your fucking shoes changed or cleaned and put the right kit on before you walk out there and make a twat of yourself. Jeremy Higgins was generally a bag of shit. I hope they took it the right way. (laughs) At this juncture, we'll take a short break. Bag
1: of shit
0: ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh there was for the first time since the Second World War a step forward from the 25 pounder guns. Oh what's happening?
1: What's happening Gary? well, it's a memorable date because the battery receives a 105 millimeter light guns. Wow, towed by one-ton Land Rovers and capable of being light gun. It's not that light, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So capable of being transported by helicopter, and and guess what? Where were they? Where were they made? Designed, well, produced, and manufactured. Birmingham. We're in Birmingham. Was it there? Was it? Was it Birmingham?
0: Well, it was at the Royal Ordnance Factory, which is in Nottingham. Of course, it was. Now, this marked a key step forward as the battery was now equipped with a gun still in use with the regular army and the NATO standard calibre for field guns rather than a relic from a bygone age.
1: Well... You can imagine what the South Knots did, because they've now, it's still only a training troop, but now they've got the real gun. So they start special training and the battery throws itself into mastering these new guns, these fabulous new light guns. Uh, Who do you think's key in this process? And I already know the name I've got in my mind.
0: Well, I think you're referring to Sergeant Smudge Smith. Do
1: you remember his first names?
0: Uh, Smudge. Uh, and it proved his value in supervising the training program and driving standards on standards onwards and upwards. He was ex-regular, wasn't
1: he? He was ex-regular. Well, oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, now, by this time, uh, Bob Watson's coming to the end of his period in command, and I think he did a great job uh, as an in- it sounds bad, but sort of an interim commander. I mean, his peer was wrecked by the, uh, the threat over the battery. And the next person to be considered for the post uh, was Ian Cunningham came forward. Captain Ian Cunningham was considered. Now, that's quite
0: strange from an outsider in some ways because uh, he's a bit of a maverick, isn't he? Yeah, but he was also a highly competent officer. He'd had a successful civilian career, and at last gained. A, <laughs> Harry, a,
1: did you say at last? <laughs> yes,
0: uh, gained a sort of degree of maturity, beginning to be commensurate with his advancing age. I think I wrote like you. I,
1: th- I was just going to say, I'm not sure I've ever reached that degree of maturity. Uh, So this is what Captain Ian Cunningham uh, says uh, uh, as he realises he's being considered. He said, I wasn't entirely sure I wanted to be battery commander. The realisation that that would be the end, that there would be a three-year period and then an end to what I enjoyed doing. I I just thoroughly enjoyed being a forward observation officer and everything that went with that. So I was reluctant to change that. The moment I became a battery commander... Well, A, it would be for a finite period of time, and B, entirely selfishness, I may not be able to enjoy myself as much as I had as a forward observation officer. I was persuaded that there wasn't anybody else, and that if I didn't do it, then somebody would be brought in, and therefore it was up to me to do it, as I was a South Knots hazard. I decided that it was effectively payback time. Notice that's an echo of what... Uh, uh, Aldershaw said, uh, I'd had a tremendously enjoyable time. Her Majesty had paid me well to do something I thoroughly enjoyed doing. And it was time for me to act in a slightly more grown up and responsible manner. And I admire, I, I actually, he's a really good chap.
0: But it does. It, it does. It's a perennial problem, isn't it? Every three years, they're going through this over and over again. Who's going to be the battery commander?
1: There it is. it is. They had got someone else in mind, but he couldn't do it. It's his personal because they do uh, pl- plan in succession, as you would do in your business career. Um, so, uh, willing self-sacrifice, he becomes major in Cunningham, and he takes over on the first of July, nineteen eighty-nine, uh, and he immediately finds a crisis on. Oh no, another one, Gary. What's this one about?
0: Well, the essential problem was that the powers that be in the army as a whole have finally noticed what exactly the South not were up to in developing their own role with the parachute regiment group.
1: Do <laughs> you call me at me about this?
0: Well... And this, this is Lieutenant Jeremy Higgins, bag of shite. No, of he's a-
1: my friend.
0: You've <laughs> met him. <laughs> a 426 Troop, 307 Battery.
1: Somebody in high places realised that they'd been doing it by the back door. And the whole venture kind of ceased. It didn't have happen thereafter. It continued, but in a slightly different way. The artillery system had got frightfully upset by us doing it as the free market economy artillery. So they then said we couldn't do it, and they were going to appoint another battery, two six six battery, to do it, which kind of pissed us off a bit.
0: Well, it would do, really, wouldn't it?
1: On the other hand, they had done it unofficially, and the army is going to react in that way. I'm not surprised the army reacted in that way.
0: Now, perversely, for a man who generally disdained the political role of battery commanders... You're not kidding. ...Cunningham immediately found himself thrust into the centre of a row that demanded extreme tact (laughs) and sensitivity...
1: Oh, that's the sort of role that Ian Cunningham, like myself, was born to play. And this
0: is now Major Ian Cunningham of Headquarters 307 Battery.
1: The only thing I planned to do was try and, en- to, to, try and ensure that the South Knots as ours survived, as I took over at the time of the confirmation of the ending of the role as a third OP party for regular regiment. That had gone. I was casting round to try and make sure we would survive. I was the least qualified of all the battery commanders throughout my TA career to be involved in what was necessary now, which was politics. Dun, dun, dun. So what did he
0: do? Well, it's essential that he drew together the regiment, the association, and all their friends in the regular and territorial army. Armed with his newfound sense of commitment, he buckled to, uh, in a, in a manner that many of his friends would have found incredible. It was a sign of just how much the South Knots's eyes meant to him. Nothing else would have done it.
1: Are you saying that he was a naughty boy? <laughs> well, sort of, yeah, <laughs> I mean. But when the chips chips are down, he's loyal to the battle. He says, the only thing was to try and be as professional as possible. To try and have an organisation that was as flexible as possible and was dedicated to achieving results. I started to try and make sure I went to things like conferences. I went to exercises. I tried to make sure I made use of whatever networks I got with the regular army. In other words, he conformed. Less of the, I'm a South North Czar, I'll do what I want and more of the, what can
0: I do for you, regular army, or, you know, yeah. Now, one advantage he had was that the tedium of the day-to-day administration of the Battery was largely taken away from him. And he goes on to say this.
1: Well, I was tremendously lucky that Captain Bob Privet was my admin officer from day one. It's very difficult to emphasise how much respect I have for Bob, how much in his debt I am, and how much I like him. Bob made sure that the major weaknesses I have the attention span of a gnat when it comes to things like bureaucracy and accounts never, ever, ever entered into my zones of consciousness. I never had to trouble myself with the administration of the battery about its financial viability and integrity. Everything like that was taken care of me, care of for me by Bob. And I say that's a testament to both men. I think it's a testament to Ian Cunningham that he's willing to go on record like that. And 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 make that of and of course it's a testament to the
0: to Bob Privett,
1: who was such a major figure in the in the battery then.
0: So it helps that in this dangerous period when the battery would have been vulnerable to any controversy triggered by some trivial financial incompetency, that they'd never been ruled with greater fiscal rectitude. Every penny was sacred to Bob Privett.
1: Are you saying he was a tight fisted bastard?
0: I'm not saying anything. No,
1: he was just careful with the battery's money. Quite uh, rightly. And quite rightly.
0: The first steps to the future of the battery were taken when a complex joint annual camp was organised between the various TA units within 100 Regiment, 101 Regiment and the three independent OP batteries. And once more, you're going to tell us what Major Ian Cunningham says. We were very fortunate that the Master Gunner at the time, General Martin
1: Farndale, was a tremendous friend of the South Nots and was working in our interests. He would got three OP batteries that were now going spare. The first UK camp that I did, we were effectively brigaded with 100 Regiment. They suddenly had us as their fourth battery. This was an early experiment to see how we got
0: on. It was a round Britain camp.
1: Ooh. What's that mean?
0: Uh, well, it sort of moves, as, as the name suggests. The camp started in the Sennybridge training area. Have you where been they there? Yeah, uh, there. Sennybridge, Wales? No, I don't think so. Oh, it's a nightmare. Uh, where did we go? Tenby. Hmm. I don't know if that's near there. Uh, where they had a two-day warm-up exercise for gun troop while OPs walked into the Brecon Beacons.
1: Yes, and this is Lieutenant Jeremy Higgins, forty six Troop. The OPs really didn't have a huge amount to do, it would seem, so we were sent walking. We started off at Sennybridge and the OPs had to walk over quite a lot of the Brecon Beacons. It was very hot weather and my team, we'd stripped down all our kit. I strapped my rifle to my Bergen, didn't take my webbing, just a few key bits out of it, just had a t-shirt and trousers. Having analysed our mission, we felt that was the right way to go. I came across some of the 100 Regiment guys to find they were still dressed in all their kit, combat jackets, berets on, with some very unhappy-looking soldiers some way behind them. We were, one of the only team, we were one of the only teams to complete that day's walking. It was a very hard, long walk. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to say that there's still something here that reminds me of the old South Nuts' cesars They haven't
0: changed that much. Well, you mean efficient but casual. Mm-hmm competent but ever so slightly arrogant
1: yeah yeah uh, I, I i'm not saying that's a bad thing in the army pride in unit arrogance of the your ability to do something better than someone else that's all part of the game well, even
0: part of the drill you're, you're taught to swagger
1: and uh, uh, yeah and when i say game it's practicing for war when it does matter anyway higgins goes on to say this we've got to see the other forward Observation officers of 100 uh, Regiment and 101 101 Regiment. We felt that they were a bit stuffy. They didn't have any panache, really, as far as we were concerned. They probably thought we were complete mavericks
0: and uncontrollable
1: thugs. Somewhere in between, I suppose, the truth lies. And again, uh, now that's overtly arrogant.
0: Yeah, and it probably rhymed with mavericks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You've lost me, (laughs) After this, hang on, i have gonna have to press the pause button. Pricks.
0: After this, they moved to Salisbury Plain for some gun troop exercises. While the OPs flew to, into the Otterburn area for se- a severe patrol, severe patrolling that, exercise. That must
1: have been a nightmare.
0: <laughs> Finally, the gun troops moved into the Otterburn camp for a final fire and movement exercise and engaging targets as battery. Regiment and Divisional Artillery Group.
1: Now the South we can't go into detail about this, but they did well in in the whole combined uh exercise. But I suppose the jury's still out as to whether they get a permanent home. They're all playing, if you like, these batteries for a permanent home in a hundred regiment. And this is what honorary colonel, remember, the past now, Peter Featherby, what he said. Eventually it was decided. That the yeomanry regiments would form up into a hundred regiment. The fight was on between the South Knots Hussars yeomanry and the Sussex yeomanry, which was already in hundred regiment. But the Sussex regiment weren't terribly well recruited, and we were. Once again, it was the highest number of soldiers, uh, the, highest, uh, the, the highest the number of soldiers you have, the stronger you are when it comes to a change of heart. When something drastic like this happens, a number of us, Arthur Warburton, you remember these names, Gary, James Gunn, that's another old colonel, myself, the old Comrades Association, that's the lads from the first... uh, the Second World War Project, that's all those guys, and the battery commander at the time, we get together and we try and produce a plot and to put our thoughts into the appropriate minds of generals and above. We had a great ally in Sir Martin Farndale, who was a master gunner and very, very sympathetic to the South, not to South. Um, that's not entirely a logical basis for it, but they, they are well-organised. But they, did you notice what he said?
0: Yeah, if uh, they were to survive, then one of the batteries already in the regiment, probably 200 battery, the Sussex Yeomanry, has to go. Simple as that, was it? Uh, Well, yeah, frankly. Now,
1: with the end of the Cold War, this is all going on at the same time. It's almost as if they need a new (laughs) new
0: enemy. Who who did they get? Well, as if by magic, Saddam Hussein and Iraq sprang up as a new, fully-fledged adversary in the Middle East. Mm. After the provocative Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990, retaliation by the US was all but inevitable. And after the usual ritualistic exchanges of threats, it was no real surprise when the Gulf War erupted in January 1991. Now, why is this important?
1: This is important because in the olden days, when the TA was called up, how was it called up?
0: Well, it was called up as a...
1: Unit, as a regiment or a battery. But what's happening now?
0: Well, significantly... Uh, the uh, future of the regular army was beginning to look at the TA as a sort of source of short-term reinforcement in times of need such as these. With the inevitable pressures caused by the build-up of British forces as part of the US-led coalition in the Middle East, there was soon a call for volunteers from the TA.
1: Now, one of these calls was for uh, men to serve with the 3rd Regiment Royal Horse Artillery, who were about to go on a tour of duty in police. Now, you might say... What's that got to do with it? But, of course, they're it just filling releases, in gaps. Yeah, it releases that people. That frees other people. Uh, and though in the end, now this is crucial, there are nine volunteers from 307 Battery, oh, either South North's and guess who one of them was? Go on, go on, go guess, guess.
0: Well, Sergeant Smudge Smith, with war above the horizon, he was getting
1: restless. What did he say? Because he does go. He becomes part of D Battery, 3rd Regiment, RHA. What does he say?
0: The war was coming on and a message came from 3rd RHA that they wanted a gun sergeant and some men to go to Belize. None of the other gun sergeants wanted to go, so I said I'd go. I'd been out a long while, but I felt compelled to help the army out. We were going to war. All I ever wanted to do is to prove myself out in the field of war. I still do. There was a slim chance that we could have gone to Iraq if it it had escalated. They had reduced the regular soldiers in D battery to bolster up the other battery who were going to war in Iraq and that had left D battery weak to go to Belize. So they sent out messages to the TA, but they specifically asked for us because they were on FH 70s and we had the light gun and they were going to operate on the light gun. They didn't have a fucking clue about the light gun. They signed us up as regular soldiers for a year in January 1991.
1: So, 3rd th- RHA, uh, we're, we're going to start operating in Belize on the light gun, I see. So, they needed people who knew what, because they were normally up to then They'd been on FH-70. We'll come back to that later. FH-70 is the big bangy thing. Um, now, um, Smith, uh, <laughs> he makes an impression on this rather makeshift batteries in D battery, in D-battery in Belize.
0: Uh, um That's that's because when they got out of Belize, he's in in his element. He was based at Redoubt Camp, Puntadora, where he took over the light guns and he set about checking the condition of the slightly elderly guns and equipment.
1: Yeah, it's worth pointing out that although the light guns had been relatively new to the south, not to Czars, they'd been in the British Army
0: for ages. Uh, How did he find the guns? Well, he was duly, utterly appalled and eventually stripped the guns right down to their bare bones to rebuild them from scratch. He then worked hard training the gun detachments and introducing them to some of the shortcuts in gunnery.
1: Well, that's because they cheat, don't they? Yeah, Uh, I mean, various little tricks of
0: the trade. Now, the men were also exposed to the joys of jungle training in the steamy hot jungles. Now, they're also involved in various Land Rover patrols ranging far and wide on the appalling local roads.
1: Well, I know what that's about. That's about, I remember interviewing people about that. They were, this is not about the Guatemalans. This is about the drug trafficking. Drug trafficking, yeah. Uh, it's rife, yeah. Um, best of all was detached duty with a section. Uh, where was that? It's a little offshore island. And what they're meant to be doing. <laughs> Well, they're meant
0: to be monitoring the shipping and guarding against possible trespass on Belizean territory from the nearby Honduras. I
1: think they're just having a great time. having a great time, yeah. I think
0: it's fair to say that throughout his time in Belize, uh, Smith worked hard and uh, what else did he do? Well, there's the old saying, isn't it? Work hard and play hard. And he played even harder. Now, certainly during the hot, sticky evenings, he singularly failed to adapt his unique lifestyle to the uh, climate. And this is Sergeant Smudge Smith. I liked this Caribbean rum. I have got a real taste for it. And I was drinking a bottle a night with a bit of Coke. Only a little bit. It rained at 10 o'clock every night. Bang! You could hear it coming over the treetops and bang! It rained. I had this white shirt and white trousers on and I would try and leave before the rain came, drinking the old Caribbean rum and a few fosters. I'd be all over the place and one or two nights I fell down the old storm drain, said, sod it, and slept there. It had snakes and everything in it. I just lay there and suffered.
1: I can imagine lying there surrounded by snakes going, I'm not biting him. He'll have me. And big spiders going, I oh, don't like the look of him. Uh, he, he's, he's got a reputation as one of the toughest nuts in the, in, in the, uh, in the old uh, Royal Artillery. But he does meet his match in one particular insect form. What? what tell, me, tell me more, Gary. What could defeat Smudge Smith?
0: Well, this is what he says. There was a beetle called a rhino beetle. It had a horn like a rhino about two and a half inches by an inch wide. I thought, I'll crush that. I stood on it and it just looked at me and walked off. I thought, fuck that. Love it.
1: Now, um, by this time, so he's out there. I mean, that's a bit of a sideline. It's important, though, because that is the future of the TA, uh, which is now called, what's it called now? Army it's, Reserve. It's, yeah, it's part. Uh, and they're, they're called up as individuals. This is the future. But let's get back to the, the, the unit main. And in 1991, there's another um, uh, old regular who, who's causing... Real, real increase in efficiency on the guns. Uh, this is a P- former PSI sergeant. He'd been a PSI uh, with the with the regiment. Steve Wake. He comes back to the South Nuts Cesar. Now he's not a regular. He's a TA. He's, he's left the regulars, and he he is installed as gun number one uh, on one of the guns. Uh, so, what do you think happens when Smudge Smith comes back?
0: Well, he comes back in early 1992, and the level of competition between the two old regulars was unending. (laughs) Both men using every ounce of their experience and knowledge to try and outwit the other one. You mean the cheated? Uh, In some cases, yes. And this is what Sergeant Stevie Wake of 425 Troop says. Aye, you want to get that
1: first round away and get to be the adjusting gun. You've beat him, you'd look at each other and you'd say, ''You wankers, Smudge used to cheat like shit, always has done, (laughs) always will do.'' I wouldn't cut corners, because that corner could be somebody's life or an injury you didn't need. Do you believe him? Hmm. Hmm. If I was taught gunnery by the School of Artillery, I used to do it that way. But Smudge used to know how to cheat. One day we beat Smudge out and he didn't like it. You can always tell when Smudge doesn't like it because he starts beating his crew up. We always said that we should have got best gun, but he always used to get it. It was the way he was. I never got it. I used to come second a lot. Some things weren't meant to be and that was one of them. It was so competitive. And you get a delightful picture of the competition between these two old regulars. Uh, The... Just, I just want you to notice, because something is going to come up. Smudge is great, and I, I actually really like Smudge Smith as a character. But, that He also does some things that you're not allowed to do in the army. Well, you're not allowed to beat up your crew, are you? You're not allowed to hit people in the army. Um, you can hit the enemy, but you can't, you know. Now, uh, so, um,
0: uh, so, 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 so where are we then? Well, the competition, that inevitably drove up standards, both in their own gun detachments, but also right across the gun troop. Now this was of inestable value for the moment of decision was nigh under the options for change review.
1: Yeah, and they're not unaware of what's happening and they're trying to reposition themselves to the best advantage so that they get through. And this is uh, Major Ian Cunningham, headquarters. Well, he's in charge. We had taken over the light gun. We were reasonably competent with it. We were nothing like as competent as the other batteries of 100 Regiment were because, of course, our strength had always been at the OP end. This was the beginning of a change of emphasis. We started to have to reform ourselves as a gun battery. We had to change our balance to make sure that we were an effective, gun battery rather than OPs. Now the news finally comes out in Mar- the, the, the option for sausages change comes out in March
0: 1992. Uh, what do you think it is? Well it's all good news for the South Nazi czars. A combination of political influence, high recruitment levels and their own skill has secured their future as a gun battery in 100 Yeomanry Field Regiment under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Roger Stiles.
1: Hmm. So, what's the new unit going to be? Well, well, it's going to be Headquarters Battery, of course,
0: yeah. 201st Hearts and Beds Yeomanry Fine Field Battery. I mean. They were based at Luton and St Albans. I know people who are born in Luton. I know people who play golf in St Albans. <laughs> what else? Uh, 202 uh, Suffolk and Norfolk Field Battery, which was based at drill halls across Suffolk and Norfolk. And finally, of course, uh, the Sussex. 307 South Knots Hussars Field Battery.
1: That's not the Sussex. What's that to the Sussex? No, the
0: three batteries would eventually all be equipped with a 155mm F870 medium gun, which was the NATO standard medium calibre.
1: That's much bigger, because the the light gun, you said, was 105mm. So this is a really a bigger, bangier gun, isn't it?
0: Yeah, now as you uh, sort of referenced, sadly, the 200 Sussex Yeomanry battery of Brighton, despite all their traditions and long history, would no longer have an artillery role, and they'd be rebadged as Royal Engineers.
1: That's it's so a change. What what you what I want to make clear here is, if we were doing that project on the Sussex Yeomanry, this would be a, a a moment of tragedy. Everyone would be spitting feathers and the rest of it. Well, yeah, but, because the but, South
0: Nottezzars they they appear to have clambered to safety over the bodies of the Sussex Yeomanry, and everybody in Android Regiment was uh, more than aware of it.
1: Yeah, because the other two batteries in the headquarters would presumably have established relationships with the Sussexes. That that could be difficult. Um, However, who do we care about? Who do the South Not Zars care about?
0: The South Not and even those who look back wistfully to the days of 307 Regiment could grudgingly see that everything was good, it was a great result.
1: Well, this is Colonel Arthur Warburton, who was immediately well, a wartime veteran and immediately afterwards, he said, I suppose we ought to be grateful that we'd even got a battery, because so many regiments have gone to the wall. Altogether. And uh, when we continue in the next episode, they'll be on the 155mm FH-70 uh, gun. It's huge. It's big. It's powerful.
0: And it's coming soon. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. <laughs>
1: Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah,
0: blah. us, you
1: can now buy us a coffee.
0: Blah, blah, blah. Visit
1: blah. Www. Blah. www.buymeacoffee.com backslash
0: pgmh or visit blah, 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 blah and we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening.